I'm your host, Tom Romer, reporting from San Luis Obispo. David Blakely, your father, was a war hero in World War II, a B-17 pilot. Tell us that story and how he wound up posthumously becoming a star of an Apple TV series. That's a long story, yeah. Tom. You got a minute? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's interesting The Masters of the Air is focusing on the 100th Bomb Group, which was my father's group from World War II. My father was a bomber pilot, flew B-17, one of the early original pilots. And he does get some airtime in Masters of the Air. He's portrayed by actor David Shields. And I think part of the reason that the story of the 100th Bomb Group was chosen by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, the producers of the show, Mm -hmm. is that there is a good collection of information from the 100th Bomb Group. There was a guy named Harry Crosby. That was a buddy of your dad's? Very close. The guy who Harry Crosby replaced in episode two, Bubbles Payne, Bubbles Payne was my father's navigator all through training. Bubbles Payne was my dad's best man at his wedding. He married my mom in Boise, Idaho. And Bubbles Payne, as a matter of fact, we just lost him in the last episode. He gets sick, and when he gets sick, my dad needed a navigator for a mission. And so they put Harry Crosby on my dad's plane. Harry had been kicked off of Brady's plane because he did a horrible job navigating for Brady as they were coming from the United States over to England and got them way off track. As a matter of fact, got them flying over France, Mm -hmm. occupied France. So Brady told Crosby to get off his plane, basically. So Crosby was without a job. And uh, Bubbles Payne, my dad's navigator, got sick. So they threw Crosby on the plane with my dad. And Crosby then became my father's navigator for 18 missions that we have been able to find information on. And Harry Crosby was an author. He became an English professor at Harvard University and wrote a book called A Wing and a Prayer. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to know what's going on with the movie Masters of the Air, I think A Wing and a Prayer is probably closer to what they actually put on screen than Masters of the Air up until this point of the TV series. So he wrote a book, and because he was my father's navigator... My father being the pilot, there's a lot of experiences that Harry goes into with the missions in which my father was the pilot. And that book, I believe, became a foundational work for subsequent writers uh, looking to write about the air war in Europe. And because of that, the 100th Bomb Group, I think, became a little more famous than some of the other bomb groups in England at that time. And They were all doing heroic stuff, unbelievable challenges, unbelievable amount of work and effort, heroism from all of the groups. But because of Harry Crosby, in his book, I think The Hundredth got a little bit more attention. It also had a reputation as having some of the more colorful characters. Mm -hmm. Even before the TV series came out, the characters of The Hundredth Bomb Group were pretty well known among people who had an interest in the bomber command, the 8th Bomber Command, flying out of East Anglia in England. So, you know, if you're making TV, you want good characters. And backing up a little bit, square one, the B-17 was a Boeing bomber before the advent of pressurized cockpits. These guys were in an unpressurized space, temperature 
40 below zero, flying at 30,000 feet. Incredible. This is hard to believe. I, I can't imagine uh, Lucky Luckadoo, a co-pilot in the 100th Bomb Group, has written a book recently, and he says there were really three enemies that they had to deal with. One was the German Luftwaffe, one was the German Flak, and the third one was the cold. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to imagine how cold it is 26,000 feet up in the air. And you have to deal with that. You have oxygen on. That's why I think um, the early part of the war in 1943, the summer of 43, when the 8th Air Force really kicks into high gear, uh, the whole idea of a bomber was a new concept. They really didn't have any knowledge and experience and understanding of quite how it was going to work. So they were learning on the fly. And I think uh, that is why one of the reasons most of the early missions of the 100th Bomb Group in uh, May, June 1943 were targets right across the English Channel. They were bombing submarine pins because the German U-boats were wrecking havoc in the North Atlantic. 80,000 merchant marines died. Wow. People, I think, uh, don't know that the number's that high. 80,000 merchant marines bringing goods from the United States to England, and Churchill had to get control of the North Atlantic, or the supplies just couldn't get over there. So their early missions were bombing the submarine pins, the submarine infrastructure, and conveniently, those locations were relatively close to England, just across the English Channel. And I think they flew them to knock out the submarine infrastructure, but also to learn what will the crews do in actual combat? How will these planes do? What is mm -hmm. the way we create formations? Uh, what is the best altitude? How accurate is the Norton bombsite going yeah, to be? Talk a moment about the Norton bombsite, because that was a game changer and a high-tech piece of equipment. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell has written a book called The Bomber Mafia, and I highly recommend it. Malcolm Gladwell is a, a great, great reader, a yeah. great writer, yeah. interesting style. He gets into the whole development of the Norton bomb site, and I, I'm sure it's one of those things that history buffs could argue back and forth. But it generally, I think his thesis is that it was a good instrument, but it wasn't the miracle, put a bomb in a pickle barrel kind of an instrument that they promoted. Norton did a really good job of uh, promoting his product. Norton did a really good job of creating the environment of secrecy. You know, in, in, in the last episode of Masters of the Air, the bombardier is telling the navigator to put a bullet. Right, to destroy it. Destroy yeah. it, because they didn't want it to fall into the hands of the enemy. And... Uh, I think Malcolm Gladwell says basically that, well, the Germans had the technology, and they could do this too if they wanted. It wasn't that accurate. During the daylight bombing, that's a whole other interesting subject, Tom. Let's go there just a sec. Yeah. I find this more interesting when I try to understand the why. Mm -hmm. After World War One, flying like spads and biplanes, and now we've got bombers and P-40, P-51s, mm -hmm. P-38s flying around the sky, and they hadn't been exposed to war, so they had to have planners, and the Air Force attracted the divergent thinkers in the Army. The Air Force didn't really exist until after the war. It was part of the Army Air Corps, so they had to work under the Army administrative organization. But there was a, a group of uh, thinkers 
in Montgomery, Alabama, at the Air Corps Tactical School, where they were able to work out the philosophical ideas of what we were going to do and how we were going to do it and where we should put our financial resources. There was a big battle at that school between the pursuit advocates and the bomber advocates. The pursuit would be the fighter advocates, and they had this battle, and uh, the bomber advocates won that argument. They become known as the bomber mafia. Mm -hmm. That's why they started putting all the resources into the bomber command. Well, unfortunately, that retarded the growth and development of the fighter. And we will see in Masters of the Air that a huge change is going to happen in the winter and spring of 1943 and 1944 with the introduction of the P-51s because they had a much longer range. They could provide support to the bombers. The casualty rates are going to go down significantly uh, in that period of time. Maybe divert for a moment the red tails. It's a great story. We're going to see them coming into the next couple episodes Mm -hmm. of Masters of the Air and another group of heroic individuals doing amazing things. And this was 100% segregated unit. That's right. They were providing support to the B-17s. A whole thing changed, too, when Eisenhower kind of was taking control of all the military in Europe and was focusing on D-Day. So a lot of the strategy of the air war starts to change during this period of time. And Jimmy Doolittle will become the head of the Bomber Command in England. And he has a different philosophy of what he should be doing with the fighters. The main role of the fighters up until Jimmy Doolittle took command was to support the bombers. When Jimmy Doolittle takes over, their job is twofold, not only to support the bombers, but to go after the Luftwaffe. And that's primarily because Eisenhower had to control the airspace to have a successful invasion on D-Day. So they had about a year to start working on the German Luftwaffe, and uh, the fighters and the Red Tails are going to start not only attacking the Luftwaffe, as they attack the bombers, but they're going to go down to the ground and blow them up on the ground if they can. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, the bomber command will run what they call a couple of fake missions just to draw the fighters up so that they can be attacked and knocked out because Eisenhower had to have control of the skies. I mean, D-Day was bloody enough. Can you imagine what it would have been like if the Luftwaffe could strafe those beaches Mm -hmm. and drop bombs on those beaches, how much more horrendous it would have been? And so uh, it's interesting for me to see how these things interact with one another and influence one another, and it makes it so more interesting to me than to understand why they were doing what they were doing, the why behind it. Mm-hmm. So those uh, Tuskegee Airmen, brave men. And an interesting aside, a couple of the heads of that training at Tuskegee, they were white racists that tried their best to flunk these candidates. And so the only ones that persevered were so brilliant so bulletproof they could not take them out so they paradoxically wound up with the most badass pilots in the united states army air corps yeah that's a it's an amazing story yeah they did really distinguish themselves and masters of the airs 
going to have some of the Tuskegee Airmen showing up here real soon. That's so cool. Well, there's some anecdotal stories about the pilots being resistive when the red tail showed up but within one or two missions they're going oh can we have those guys back <laughs> yeah great yeah let's roll back in time your dad's life because he had not moved to san luis obispo yet my dad grew up in seattle he was born in elgin illinois his mother died when he was eight in a train crash wow. a car got hit by a train so his grandfather, this was like early depression, needed work. Mm -hmm. And I had an uncle who was uh, the head of personnel at the Olympic Hotel in Seattle, Washington, which is now the Fairmont, mm -hmm. one of the fanciest hotels downtown. So my father worked there as a staff person. My grandfather, I mean, my uh -huh. grandfather. So my dad grew up in Seattle. Um, he graduated high school in Seattle and went to college there and had three years in when he decided and roosevelt see roosevelt's another interesting story roosevelt was very smart about getting america ready to get into the war without making it look like he was getting ready to get mm -hmm. into the war because it was a very strong america first charles Lindbergh and all those people strong isolationist this movement in america in the 1930s and roosevelt knew that well we're going to get sucked into this. We should start getting ready. So 1938, 39, kind of under the table, Roosevelt starts building up the Air Force because he knows that's going to be an important weapon. So he starts recruiting people. My dad got recruited, and he ends up down in Santa Maria. Wow. At Hancock Field. Yeah. And this was the thing that Roosevelt, some budget trickery that Roosevelt did, because a lot of these early training facilities were privately owned and operated. Hancock's Field was a private That's right. school. So yeah. you instead of building the infrastructure yeah. and owning it and having that kind of a line item in the budget and increasing the amount of personnel for it, it's a lot easier just to contract it out in a different budget item. Mm -hmm. So my father flew Stearman biplane down there and mm -hmm. trained on those learned how to fly at Hancock but he was still a civilian yeah he hadn't got his wings mm -hmm. yet he wasn't a commissioned officer yet and then but he that got, was his plan he wanted to do it this is mm -hmm. before the war right so uh, in December 41 when Pearl Harbor gets attacked dad's up at Moffett Field training on uh, Volte Falcons a, a fighter plane a single-engine trainer fighter plane when the war breaks out. So now he knows the war's happening, and he continues his training. He thinks he's going to be a fighter pilot, and most of the guys wanted to be the fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. That's the glory, hot rod, race car driver guy. Yeah. Yeah. And he found out that he was going to be driving the bus, be a B-17 mm -hmm. pilot. When he gets uh, assigned uh, to a B-17, starts training for that. Where did he do his B-17 training? Well, he did it in a number of places. Uh, Kearney, Nebraska, that's the opening scene of Masters of the Air is at their training facility in Kearney. Dad's at the bar buying people a drink and celebrating the two Buckies. But he did Kearney, Nebraska. He did uh, Sioux City, Iowa, where he met my mom at a dance and mm -hmm. married her after a long relationship of about three weeks. Wow. And then he got sent to Boise, Idaho, where he trained for a while. And uh, eventually, you know, just like in the TV series, he went off to Greenland. And that's very true about them. Land they lost planes landing in Greenland. 
planes were lost there. Stop at Greenland and then over to Scotland, actually, and then down from Scotland to Thorpe's Abbott. And the only reason I know this, it's so interesting to me, I was starting to do my investigation in this, and they had these things called short snorters. It was a military thing where if you were in a foreign country and you went to a bar, you pulled out a bill, and your friends that are at the bar all signed the money. And then if you show up at the bar again and you don't have that, you're buying everybody a drink. So my dad had collected these, and my brother has them on a wall. And I said, well, what kind of information is there? Because my dad would date them and the location so I could tell on what day where he was. And that way I was able to tell how he got from the United States over to Thorpe Abbott. One of the most memorable ones on the Regensburg mission, the, the series number four, talked about where they landed in North Africa. Uh, Curtis LeMay was head of the 3rd Division at the time, and he took the lead plane on that mission and landed in North Africa with the rest of the Bomber Command. And so while my dad was in Africa, he got Curtis LeMay to sign one of these things, and Curtis LeMay, some of you might remember, would ran with George Wallace for president. Yeah. I don't think he ever agreed with Wallace on a lot of things. He was probably most famous for the firebombing of Japan. Mm-hmm. So after they moved him from the 3rd Division over to Burma and then eventually to the Japanese, uh, bombing the Japanese, he said that if the Americans don't win the war, he's going to be tried as a war criminal because he killed millions of Japanese civilians. And the interesting bit of trivia that I came across was that when they were talking about dropping the atom bomb in Japan, Curtis LeMay was on the team that helped make the recommendation to President Truman on whether to do it or not. And believe it or not, this is counterintuitive, LeMay was the only one who said, do not drop the atom bomb. Oh, wow. So you think, why? Mm -hmm. And his thinking was that the firebombing was working. Just give me another month and we'll mm-hmm. get the Japanese to surrender. But he was overridden by the rest of the decision makers. Ultimately, it's Truman's decision. And I just found that as an interesting tidbit about that. But I tell you, the men that served under Curtis LeMay loved him. Mm-hmm. because he walked the walk and talked the talk. He knew more about the airplane than anybody He went on the missions and put his life on the line like the guys did, Mm -hmm. and he was tough. The guys respected that. Let's loop back to your dad. Okay. How many missions did he go on? This is my search for the Holy Grail, Tom. Crosby, in his book, talks about the 18 missions that he flew with my dad. I've been able to go back and... Uh, make sure there's 18. Did he have a logbook that he kept? We don't have it. Okay. We don't have it. I spent a week in Montgomery, Alabama, going through the archives there, looking for that kind of information. I hired a professional researcher in St. Louis to go through their archives. See, because when you fly, you get extra money. Mm-hmm. And so there's a financial thing, so there needs to be a paper trail. So I'm trying to find that paper trail. If I can find out when my dad flew, I can follow that paper trail then to see if he was on that mission. And I've been drawing a blank, but here's kind of what happened that complicates it even a little bit more. So 18 missions. On October 8, 1943, the Bremen mission, which we just saw 
on episode three of Masters of the Air. In episode four, my dad shows up because he comes back to the barracks. Remember, they had already cleaned out his beds and mm-hmm. they gave them to somebody else. Yeah. Well, on that mission, coming home Because they thought he, he they got thought shot he was down. Gone. Yeah. Jack Kidd, who was the CO and flies with my dad as a command pilot. My dad's the pilot of the plane, leader of the group formation, mm-hmm. senior member there. When you have the pilot flies the plane, is responsible for the plane, the command pilot sits in the co-pilot seat and is responsible for the formation. So it's usually a, a major or above, where it's a captain or below is going to be the pilot. So Jack Kidd was flying as the command pilot for the formation with my father as a pilot of the plane. And they ended up losing two of their engines on the Bremen mission. They get separated from the group. And I always think of the, you know, the old nature stories where who do the jackals and the coyotes go after? It's the weakest mm-hmm. member of the herd, right? So if you're the weakest member of the herd, even on a bomber formation, that's the one that they're going to go after and try to take out. So they focus their attention on my dad's plane after they drop the bombs on the way back to England and start attacking it. Well, they are now over northern Germany, getting ready to go over Belgium, and my father's plane is limping along on two engines. They knock out another engine. Now they're really limping along to get across the English Channel. But in the course of this, my father's plane and the the gunners shoot down nine Luftwaffe planes, which is a record on one mission by one plane that still stands today coming back from Bremen. This is a wounded aircraft. Oh, limping, limping. So they get to the English Channel. A guy by the name of Sanders, a waste gunner, is severely uh, wounded, actually dies after this mission, is on the plane, and so are they going to ditch it in the English Channel? Well, Dad says, but we're not going to ditch it because Sanders isn't going to make it if we ditch it. I think their flotation devices were all shot up. You know, the plane is all shot up, over 1,800 holes in it when they finally get it on the ground. So they get up to the English Channel, they're losing altitude, and they're starting to, just like Biddick in Episode 2 of Masters of the Air, start throwing everything out of the plane. Mm -hmm. Everything gets thrown out. They can be thrown out to lighten the load. They actually start to gain a little altitude. They're limping across the English Channel. They get across the English Channel, and they're looking for a place to put the plane down. Well, if you, the Battle of Britain was going on, so the Germans were bombing England. And so they had a lot of these dummy airfields set up with cardboard and plywood planes to kind of fake the Germans out. Well, Dad finds one of those phony air bases mm-hmm. in Ludham, England, lands the plane, no he, landing gear. Did he think it was a real... He's just like, looking for a place to yeah, get it down. I right. bet you at that point in Didn't time... Didn't care. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> so he's looking for a place. They find this field and no landing gear, no rudder control... You know, going now probably about 180 miles an hour, the stall speed's around that, they're almost at stall speed. They get it down, and he's sliding across this grass field, heading right for a 200-year-old oak tree, and out of control. Within three feet of my father, he could stick his arm out after the plane lands and touch the oak tree. Wow. The plane creams into that oak tree and spins around. So that's... 
I don't know where I was going with this story, <laughs> but it's a great story. Yeah. So, but that happened. Oh, back to the mission. So, after that mission, the next day, this is in the TV series, is where Bucky Egan is in England with that woman from Poland. His friend gets uh, Bucky Clevin, the Austin Butler character, in the Bremen mission gets knocked out and becomes a prisoner of war. So his friend is going to avenge him on the Munster mission. Well, my dad's crew just gets back to the barracks when everybody now is getting ready to go on the Munster mission. So my father didn't go on the Munster mission, which is good because only one plane returned, Rosie Rosenthal's plane. It was out of 13. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, amazing. So up to that point, I've got the record. So after the Bremen mission, my father became the squadron commander because on the Munster mission, the squadron commander, Bucky Egan, goes down and becomes a prisoner of war. So there's no squadron commander. My father replaces Bucky Egan and becomes a squadron commander. And as a squadron commander, you're not going to be a pilot of a plane. You might go as a command pilot. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking my father was a command pilot on some missions, but to make... This long story, just a little shorter, I have not been able to find a record of missions beyond the 18 that Harry Crosby talks about in his book. Any guesstimate? Well, my brother Jim, who is more into this than I am, (laughs) talked to the surviving members of the 100th Bomb Group over the years. Mm -hmm. There's a very active 100th Bomb Group Foundation nonprofit organization in America gets together every couple of years and has reunions and, and talks and presentations. That's and a stuff. thinning herd right now, isn't it? There's about four guys left. Mm-hmm. Four guys left. But at the time, this is my dad. I can remember him going to these meetings. My dad helped put one on down in L.A. when oh. we lived in the San Fernando Valley. Let's roll back in time. Yeah. Yourself growing up in the post-World War II era. When did you become aware of your dad's role in World War II, and did he ever talk to you guys about it? Okay, so he didn't talk about it very much, mm-hmm. and I totally get it. You know, if I had been through some of these experiences that we're now seeing on TV, and you're doing things that you don't want to remember, you mm-hmm. know, and one time my dad said it really bothered him that they were killing civilians. You know, he'd be bombing factories. That was the whole notion of the daylight bombing was that we could precision bomb and knock out factories without having to kill civilians because World War One was such an awful war. Mm-hmm. And that bugged him. But other than that, he just wouldn't talk. I knew about him because there were books that were written. You know, Wing and a Prayer was out. Mm-hmm. Edwin Jablonski, another very good writer of the B-17s has written a book. Uh, there's good books on the uh, Swinefort regensburg raid that my father has mentioned in. Did your dad have any mementos up in the house when you grew up? Um, I'm trying to think. No, not really. Uh, his medals my brother took and mounted them now, but that was after my dad passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the short snorters were mounted after my dad passed. So there were not, no, it wasn't something that he bragged about yeah. or was it was a glorious thing. I think it was a real difficult, difficult experience. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about some of the accommodations and awards that your dad was given. Uh, my dad received the uh, Silver Star 
which uh, for the mission to Bremen, which is the third highest uh, medal for honor in America. And it was given to him by Curtis LeMay, actually, oh, wow. pinned it on my dad. I have a picture of that happening. He received the Distinguished Flying Cross for heroism on the mission to Trondheim, Norway, which is depicted in the uh, Masters of the Air in the second episode where Harry Crosby miraculously gets them back to England and helps that one uh, Biddick crash land up in Scotland. So he got the uh, Distinguished Flying Cross for that. He has, you know, he never got a Purple Heart, and he has a number of other medals. Now I'm drawing a blank, Tom. <laughs> uh, those are the two that I can think of yeah. that are probably the most meritorious. Uh, and uh, But he never bragged about it at all, never, never boastful, never... Mm-hmm. Uh, anything. It was actually, it was hard, and I regret that now. Uh, I wish I would have been as aware and as educated about the Bomber Command and uh, the 100th Bomb Group so I could ask my dad these questions. So if you have that chance, <laughs> the Vietnam vet or Korea vet, and take this chance now to pick their brains and get that information because someday it'll be too late and you'll have regrets about that. Believe me, I know. I just wrote a letter to somebody back east last night about a, one of my mom's friends who was a woman air service pilot. Oh. Yeah. yeah that ferried bombers and fighter planes. And she had been a Ford model before World War II. Uh And the crew chiefs had to strap locks on the rudder pedals so that she could reach them. And I I tried to get her to talk about it. You know, in her little southern world, oh, it was nothing, honey. And Uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. They are now being recognized for the work that they did. And uh, they were never highly respected at the time. But they did do a very, very important job in terms of get, moving those planes around. Yeah. Well, even more, this woman, she was an instructor at Waco Army Air Corps Base teaching the guys how to fly. Oh. Yeah, incredible. A lot of talent out there. After the war, go home. Yeah, yeah. it's too bad. A lot of them never got the pay. No, no benefits, nothing, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it's a sad, yeah. sad mark, but yeah. very important job. And that's another thing I want to take a minute. There's a lot of attention focused on guys like my dad. That's all great, but my dad did not operate in a vacuum. There was a lot of people making sure that those planes got up in the air. Post-World War II, how did he wind up coming to San Luis Obispo? Well, after the war, my father decided to stay in. He took advantage of the GI Bill like so many GIs. What a wonderful program. Uh, really made America great. Mm-hmm. And finished his education at the University of Washington and was a Latin American studies major, and I don't know exactly why. Wow. Because he had some knowledge in that, they sent him to Monterey to the language school. And so he learned Spanish. At that time, back in 1949, 1950, America was kind of worried about the Russians and the Nazis maybe that had left Germany and went to Latin America. And we wanted to make sure that we had good relationships down there. So my father was transferred to Cali, Columbia, to their Air University at Cali and was a trainer. And that's where I was born. Oh, interesting. So you're actually Colombian. I I was born in Colombia. (laughs) But Naomi and I, my wife and I went there last year and had a wonderful visit. We actually went to the base, went to the building my father's office was in, went to see the office. His desk is still there. 
he received an award from the Colombian Air Force, They right? gave him their wings. Yeah. He was, got honorary wings from the Colombian Air Force. Did he do any flight instruction or was yes. it more yeah yes he was a flight instructor there the base is like i say it's kind of their air force academy mm -hmm. it's where the officers go to learn how to fly and it's still operational um then after columbia you know we had an assignment at clark air base in the philippines uh he was down in san bernardino he was in georgia and then uh, one of my mom's and dad's favorite assignments he taught rotc at the university of notre dame for oh, five wow. years in the 60s eventually when he retires uh out of an atwater here in california at uh, merced the air base there he got a job working in lockheed in the military industrial complex and uh, he worked there for 10 years, eventually retiring. And I'm, I come from a large family. There's six uh, young Blakeleys running around. I had come up here to Cal Poly in 1972 to be a student and fell in love with the place and was lucky enough to get work up here and make a career up here. And uh, finally, I think my mom and dad, the family's all leaving Los Angeles, San Fernando Valley, Northridge area. And uh, they were looking for a place to settle down, and I got lucky. Mom and Dad decided in 1988 to move to San Luis Obispo. They sold their house in Northridge, bought a lot here in San Luis Obispo. I helped build a house for them there in San Luis and moved to San Luis Obispo in 88. They loved it here. In 2004, my dad passed away, and he's buried at the Old Mission Cemetery here in San Luis Obispo. So that's how they got up to San Luis. Interesting. I like to tell I'm their favorite child. That's why they moved up here. <laughs> yeah. I Not love true. I love it. And your yeah. dad's full name again? My father was Everett Ernest Blakely. And so the Wikipedia page is under Everett Ernest Blakely. If you want to learn more about my dad, it's a good source of information. Harry Crosby just really loved my dad. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he describes my dad as the kind of a pilot dots his I's and crosses his T's. And I tell you, if I'm on a plane and my life is on the line, that's the guy <laughs> that I want in the driver's seat. That's really and, cool. And uh, so I think uh, he had a great crew. They all loved and respected each other. You know, I have pictures of my dad's wedding, and there's his crew. Everybody, enlisted men, officers, are all there celebrating it with him and my mom. I think my dad realized that it's a group effort. It really takes the whole group pulling in the same direction. When Tom Hanks and Spielberg decided to make this series, did they consult with you or your brother at all? Uh, not exactly, but we believe indirectly. My mm -hmm. brother Jim is was in touch with the writer of the script, John Orloff, and... Um, my brother does a lot of YouTube videos and other things. So if you want to know more about the 100th Bond Group, mm -hmm. you know, with a little bit of emphasis on my father, but my brother does a good job of what? making it generic. Well, how do we go there? What's It's on YouTube. Just put in, what is Jim Blakely is his name, but mm -hmm. I put in the 100th Bomb Group. And it'll come up. It'll come up. Right. And my brother did a very lengthy interview with my father oh, cool. back in the 70s, 80s. Very cool. And has that posted. And my brother believes that David Shield, the actor that played my father, uh, and the crew from Masters of the Air went to that interview. Excuse me to find out how my dad talked, to get his little mm -hmm. slang, his nuances, slang the yeah. nuances. Yeah. 
you know, other than that, no direct communications mm-hmm. with my brother or I. My brother it would have been my brother because he's much more plugged in to hold that that whole infrastructure than I am. We are very happy with the job David Shield is doing. He's done some really interesting things to support our family over the last year. He did a wonder. My mother is still alive, living in San Luis Obispo. Oh, cool. 101 years old. We had a hundred birthday for my mom and David Shield made a very nice tribute to my father and my mother to honor her on her birthday and it was wonderful. That's really touching. It was. I love it. David Blakely, what a pleasure, man. This has been fascinating. <laughs> Action packed. We are a good listener. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so captivating. You're a good listener. I'm a good talker. There you go. I hope we both finished at the same time. Yeah. To learn more, read Harry Crosby's book, Wing in a Prayer, probably the best narrative of what it was really like to be a bomber pilot out of Europe in World War II. Masters of the Air by Donald Miller is another wonderful book, and he gets into a lot of the other things like the PTSD that the crews were experiencing, the effects of the cold that the uh, crews were experiencing, and just the mechanics of the war. And then the other one you mentioned earlier, Bomber Mafia, Gladwell. That's no, that's a good really book. fascinating. It is a good book. David Blakely, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's this been a pleasure. Is, yeah, it's been fascinating. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from San Luis Obispo. We've been talking with David Blakely. You've been listening to the Lowell Thomas award-winning travel show Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, a featured podcast on NPR.org's podcast directory. You are invited to subscribe to Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer on NPR.org, iTunes, and more than 20 other podcast channels around the world. To learn more about Tom Wilmer's journeys around America and the world, log on to thomaswilmer.com. This is Roseanne Cash, and I'm sitting here with Tom Wilmer. Please support your local NPR station. I listen to WNYC in New York. In fact, NPR is all I listen to. If I didn't have NPR, I would feel like my lifeline to the world has been cut. So, yes, please support your local NPR station. World Bicycle Relief partners with communities to deliver specially designed, locally assembled, rugged bicycles for people in need. Nearly one billion people in rural regions of the world live in communities far from the nearest paved road, walking miles every day just to survive. Distance is a barrier to attending school, receiving health care, delivering goods to market, and other critical services needed to thrive. Find out how you can help deliver rugged, dependable, life-changing bicycles to deserving communities. Log on to worldbicyclerelief.org to learn more.